Uh, and then need to give us a sync. All right, cool. What's up? Hello. <laughs> uh, we have Ankarika with us. And uh, I think we're going to talk about fairness today. Yes. Um, so why don't we just start out with uh, you telling us what fairness is? That's the worst and the most difficult question <laughs> because when you think about so many aspects of a thing, it becomes extremely confusing for what the thing really is and how much it's constrained by the definitions that you give it. Um, actually, I was thinking before coming to the podcast that, I mean, there's a generally accepted version of the definition of fairness, which is some sort of bringing about some sort of proportionality in the world. But every time you start looking at specific examples or specific situations where you want to ask this question of fairness, there's always so many other things that you need to take into account. Like one of the things that I work on is gender inequalities. And sure, there's a need for being proportional when you can, but then there's gender roles. And those gender roles, if they are legit and if they're bringing about some sort of efficiency, let's say, then you'll say, well, maybe it's also fair that people do their parts and maybe it's not equalizing exactly in inputs and outputs and that's fine. Or if you look at fairness within the family, then again, there's roles and there's different expectations. And then again, it changes. So every time you go into specific examples, the definition keeps changing and that's why it's so confusing. Is it that the definition changes or that you just always need to build out an equation and the variables in the equation change? Well, I... I don't know what the equation would be in that sense because, yes, you can add like... So a lot of people have been saying that there is there is this equation which takes into account some cultural variability or some situation-specific variables, but nobody really spells out what those variables are. And then I don't know what equation are we talking about, so... I see what you mean. Uh, I guess for me it's the fact that we can build an equation is the important bit, but... Ironing out a specific equation, I think that's going to be so uh, context-specific. The, the actual variables are going to be relative to everybody that are involved. But I think that we can say that maybe, for me, fairness and equality inhabit the same conceptual space uh, because they're both uh, basically terms in which we can have a midpoint, and that midpoint is called equal or fair. And that as you deviate away from that midpoint, you basically get like this ordinal ranking of more or less fair relative to the individual making the assessment. Mm -hmm. Or, of course, you can have one of the absolute terms being equal or fair and then just deviations from it. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the way you would make that assessment on the scale is you build an equation with the relevant terms. But think about it in um, the aspect of, let's say, a long-term friendship that you have. How possible is it really to <clears throat> figure out what's equal in the long term when there's two very different personalities who have different skills or likes, like suppose you like cooking and your friend likes taking you out to the theater or something. How exactly do you even calculate the equality of costs and benefits? It's, it becomes uh, impossible if you start talking about these things in the context of anything that we experience in real life. Yeah, I think that maybe we're coming from different uh, hopes, uh, different goals or objectives in that I don't think that we can build an objective determination of fairness. I think that each of those individuals is going to maintain their own equation. And I think listening and maybe even something like couples counseling, like what that does mm -hmm. is help you to understand the equation that the individual is maintaining in their mind. 
Mm-hmm. And so then what we can do when we're trying to reconcile a friendship or a relationship is that uh, we're trying to understand each other's equations mm-hmm. and why they seem imbalanced to one another. And then mm-hmm. say, okay, well, I will do this to bring balance to the equation in your mind. And I'm asking you to do this to bring equation to the uh, bring balance to the equation in my mind. I still need a, um, just a, for a matter of definition, trying to get myself into the conversation as well. So what's the difference between uh, equity and equality? So are we talking about uh, um, in, in terms of equation outcomes or uh, conditions? So uh, can, can you disambiguate for me equality and equity and what's okay. the relationship with fairness, f- fairness as, as, you, as you approach it? So equality and equity in the way I've learned about it is equality is you bring all the inputs that people are putting in to an equal level and the outputs as well are divided up equally. Mm-hmm. So if you're, uh, let me think of an example. Um, yeah, let's say the amount of people, amount of food people are bringing to the table and then the amount of food that every gets eaten by everyone. If you can, let's say, count it by the number of calories or by the amount of food that you bring per gram or something. Mm-hmm. That would be equality. Equity is not saying that everything needs to be exactly equal because perhaps sometimes you can't even measure how to equalize things. But if somebody is bringing in more um, to the table, that they get more in mm-hmm. return as well. Mm-hmm. And, I think, and I think that applies a lot in scenarios like jobs, where whoever is putting in more amount of effort or producing more out, producing um giving more value gets better and higher wages mm-hmm. or a better position. That's how I would disambiguate between the two. But uh, with regards to fairness, so I think fairness, there's like this huge debate going on all the time, whether fairness is about bringing absolute equality or absolute equity. There might be a few more people who say that it's more linked to equity in our minds than equality. But there's also a lot of people who say equality is what the human mind wants, and that's mm-hmm. what it thinks of it's as fair. So I I have a strong opinion on this as well. <laughs> right, in that I I think Good. equity and equality are the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that uh, these three terms for me are the, the same thing. They, we just use different terms. Um, but the important thing is that uh, equity does have a different colloquial space. I think conceptually it inhabits the same space. Colloquially we use it just in different contexts. But what we're basically doing is saying equality is, and, and, and fairness, I'm going to use them interchangeably, uh, are basically the, the state that we try to reach. And that's a state where this equation that we might build balances out. Equity is when we ad- accept that the terms that we're adding to, this, to the equation may seem unequal, but the attempt is to account for, for variables which are not seen in the present moment that will ultimately net out the equation. So w- equity is the, the process of building equality, but accounting for a larger scope of variables. Because typically when we look at equality, it's like, okay, well, uh, I'm giving you $1 and you $1, it seems equal. I might say that, well, I'm, in this moment, I'm giving uh, Guilherme $2 and Angarka $0. And they, that is unequal in this exact frame. But I might say that's building equity because in the past, Angarika had more money and I'm trying to give more money to, to uh, Guilherme. So in this sense, to me, they're exactly the same thing. This also comes into, uh, again, notions like social justice. When we're building in frameworks, we're saying actually the conversation is that if we maintain the status quo, 
we are maintaining an unequal state of affairs because we're accounting for a larger set of variables. What uh, what we do when we talk about equity is it holds sort of a different space in the social conversation, mm -hmm. but it inhabits, I think, the same exact conceptual space, is that what we want is equality. Mm -hmm. But equality in the present moment doesn't bring true equality because we have to account for variables that are being brought into the equation. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, when you're talking about this thing of uh, maintaining the status quo in the present moment, that's, I think, a really good example, because there's all of the retributive justice programs which are in place in different countries in the world, like in India, where you have reservations for women, for different people of different castes, just because historically they've been deprived of a lot of equalities because of the caste system, let's say. So um, in that case, yes, I agree with you that you want to come to um, a level playing field eventually by giving them more advantages now because they've had less before. But again, if you're talking about this equation with the variables that don't really exist, you want to build up the model down up, I would assume, uh, down to, from down to top, right? I would assume. Bottom up? Bottom up, sorry. Yes, that's the, that's the term. Where you take a lot of examples and you um, take, and you try to see what are the latent variables that everyone is sort of accounting for when they want to build up to the model. But I think if you go from, let's say, the caste system to the gender system or to within family dynamics, it's going to be very hard to find the latent variables which are um, present everywhere in similar forms. And that's the sort of obstacle that I have been coming against. I look at a lot of theories of fairness, and then I try to use those theories to look at a very specific case study of gender division of household labor. And I mean, yes, on a very broad level, if you abstract out enough, you can see how the theories could account for the sociological data in gender division of household labor. But if you abstract out a lot, and because I work a lot with anthropologists and I've understood the value of not always abstracting out for, from the details, I find it to be also a bit of a... Um, unsatisfactory approach to abstract out enough to come to this one equation which accounts for everything because then you're missing out a lot of the details at the end. So not you, so you shifted the conversation more to like um, the application of this work to policy. Is that Am I mm -hmm. getting you right? Because mm -hmm. yeah. I, I don't disagree. I think that um, the large scale policies are always going to be a mistake. I mean, especially if you're looking at um, India with a population of 1.4 billion people, if you're if you're implementing <coughs> policies to build an equity uh, to account for so many different cultural variables within 1.4 billion people, I, I think that's actually impossible. Uh, and I think that's it's even impossible in the United States, which has 0.3 billion people in it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, this is a really good case for local governance and how you can mm -hmm. say, okay, well, regionally there are going to be different factors which account for the inequity which which mm -hmm. we might see mm -hmm. uh, and I guess one other note is when when we look at certain systems uh, that have historically tried to do this you know Marxism is one of those which is fundamentally a statement of equity which is um, to each what they what they require and from each what they can provide roughly that uh -huh. I've for some reason mm -hmm. blanked on the exact phrasing but um, this is this is a system which was built in and implemented to say, okay, we can build equitable systems, but we need to make sure that we're giving things to uh, to people that are actually needed instead of saying, okay, well, we'll give everybody five dollars. We say they need more, they need less, mm -hmm. and then actually asking from people what they can give, 
And I think that these are really important systems to try to build in. And if you're trying to reform a capitalist system uh, or a, a system which has, uh, I think like India, many different political structures aside from different social structures, it's going to be really difficult. But we can do this on a local scale. On the local scale with um, help from, for then for that, you have to understand the very specific context in which you're trying to apply this larger equation. And so like now you brought up the case of for need. I think that's one other one of the things that have sometimes been equated with fairness, but not always. And um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it needs to be done on the local level, but then I'm just trying to figure out what it means for us having, for us to have this bigger theory of fairness if everything at the end at the application level needs to be done on the local scale. I get what you mean. I think this is what I mean by we have maybe different objectives in that I don't think fairness can solve anything. I, I think that listening and trying to build systems which are fair can do something. Like I, I think that we can make progress towards building an equitable slash equal slash fair situation. Uh, I think that this is definitely possible. I'm, I'm very optimistic. But I don't think that a theory of fairness will let us do that. The only thing that I think a theory of fairness, equity, equality will give us is understanding that everybody maintains their own equation. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the most successful interventions for groups has been when we sit down, have conversations, listen to constituencies and say, what do you need? Mm -hmm. What do you feel? And then they tell us what they need, what they feel, and then we try to build policies reflecting that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that bottom-up grassroots type of policymaking mm -hmm. is very different and much more effective than the top-down, well, I think you need this, therefore mm -hmm. I'll give you this. Um, which is, of course, just another style of, of colonial mindset of mm -hmm. I, I think you need this, and also this is what I feel like giving, therefore mm -hmm. I will give you this. Mm -hmm. You both mentioned something that... Uh, you both mentioned different ways of uh, the equality is what the mind wants. I would like to, mm. uh, either of you to elaborate mm. better if you want on what actually means to, what the statement of the mind wants equality and uh, how can you be so sure of that? And, um, but yeah, just another point of, 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 uh, of reforming capitalism, for example, and the, the, the the proposal of uh, universal incomes and things like that uh, um, brings to the table um, the issues of defining um, where does those equations overlap? Are there any reconciliation between those? If if any, if everybody has their own equation, um, comes back to the first question: How can you be so sure that the mind really wants equality? Mm -hmm. And uh, how how can we? meet the equations in the middle and still make sense mm -hmm. of calling it equality if, from my perspective, what is needed most of the time is concession. Uh, but concession can be a means of getting to equality, right? I yes, mean, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah so but, it's... But w once there is concession, there is uh, um, some form of... Well, the, the word implies that, right? That you took your equation and you 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 uh, just giving up uh, some part of this equation saying, look, yeah, I, from my perspective, it could be fairer than that, but I am open to accept the unbalance over here. So then, then we can actually m have some, some overlap between different equations of fairness, uh, on, depending on the cultural background, social, or, or anything more specific. 
Yeah, concessions and uh, terms like concession and reconciliation uh, are necessarily involved in the concept of, of equity um, and equality and fairness. You know, as long as we understand that they're they're broadly defined in the same sense, just used contextually differently um, in the colloquial sense, is that uh, when we're understanding, when we speak about what a concession is, we're saying, okay, well, uh, we understand that the equation isn't equal. What we're trying to do is make the equation equal. Therefore, one person is adding something into the equation. They're giving up mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And that might make the, the equation more fair. And I think that this is a really important point uh, when we also talk about accountability, which is that in order to to have accountability, we have to have the side that is asking for the concession define what that concession looks like in order to for the equation to be fair. Because you can't have the side making the concession determine what kind of concession to make. Mm-hmm. If I am guilty of a transgression against you, mm-hmm. I, I really need you to determine what accountability looks like for me. Uh, if I determine an accountability when I've trans- transgressed against you, then I'm still maintaining power. That's still mm-hmm. another form of transgression. Um, yeah. There's this one thing <clears throat> that I would now like to bring up because now both of you have referred to this as well. And uh, so I've been talking to the people that I work with on this, that a definition of fairness that we think is a lot more valuable, perhaps, is uh, the concept of mutual acceptability, bringing about some sort of mutual acceptability when you say when people have been able to sit down together, then good sort of change, which makes everyone happy has been has come around or, you know, listening to other people, what they want. And I think I'm not saying that this has got nothing to do with equity or equality, but I think this is more fundamental and this is more psychological. When you start describing fairness not as um, this top-down equation governing our lives and us trying to balance the equate the balance sheet or in some way, but just having some sort of mutual acceptability of outcomes and of distributions and listening to each other for making that happen. And this is something that I, so far, am most happy with, more than having the equations of equity and equality in mind with fairness. And yeah, that's, I think, how I see fairness nowadays. Yeah, as the, as the process of coming to terms. Yeah. With the terms. With the, yeah, the whatever the terms of <laughs> the equation. You're never going to leave the equation, though. I like, I like that. Yeah, because yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's, uh, again, the, the equation is only a tool. Uh, it and but I think it's important to recognize that everybody has their own perspective, mm-hmm. and I I think that that's why I keep harping on the idea of we need to understand what the variables are for everybody, and we need to mm-hmm. understand what the relative values of the variables are too. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're roommates and I do all of the cleaning in the apartment, but you wake up every day and you're like you're great, <laughs> these are. You're adding that to the term, I'm getting compliments, but maybe they're unequal. Mm-hmm. And so all the variables in the equation, when we throw them in, we're going to have different weights mm-hmm. uh, to each variable. And I think that's a really important thing. It just gives us a framework to talk about the important thing. There is mm-hmm. no ultimate equation. The only thing that uh, is important is putting an equal sign there and understanding that on either side of the equal sign, we put things. And if mm-hmm. the equal sign isn't true, meaning if the two sides aren't equal, then we have a problem and we need to figure out what that is. And the discussions are the most important thing that we can do. That that listening aspect, I think, is, is the most critical. Yeah, the discussion part, yeah. I agree with that. So would you say that the the work is 
tending in that direction? Uh, like the work on fairness that you're thinking about doing, uh, is that going to shift more in the direction of the subjective, uh, the subjective aspects of fairness, or maybe that that it is always subjective? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Um, I'm doing it more and more because I'm working with anthropologists who are about collecting qualitative data, which can bring about these subjective perceptions a lot more than I think um, marking out sheets in an experiment can. And that really helps. Um, I'm also doing experiments, which helps look at the behavioral outcomes that people, uh, how, how people end up behaving in certain circumstances. But yeah, I think the subjectivity part I'm trying to bring forward. I um, How much have I done it? I don't know. I think I've done it a little bit with the help of others. But that's the thing that we're trying to build. I don't know what theoretical, what larger theoretical thing is going to come out of it. We do have some theoretical ideas of um, how interpersonal relationships might matter and how looking at long-term aspects of these relationships more than putting people to interact one-on-one, those things are more influential for determining fairness. Um, but yeah, that's the sort of thing we're doing right now. So in your opinion, uh, is fairness an uh, innate drive of the human mind? <laughs> that's what you asked before as well, yeah. Um, yeah, I think having being happy or content with, a, with an outcome or with the way of the world if that can be thought of as fairness, I'm I'm not exactly sure. So yes, there's contentment. Yes, people feel unjustified in a sense, and then they can feel angry about certain mm-hmm. outcomes. Um, and a lot of people would call that the sense of fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it would be expected that um, we would try to just to make it just something that is seems uh, seems as just against us ourselves right mm-hmm. maybe what we should be what would be more interesting it's see if that would be the case for us perceiving the treatment of others around us mm-hmm. so if we are uh innately uh bothered by unfairness that's mm-hmm. around us mm-hmm. not exactly against us I think that's actually easier to do. If you mm. see other people being treated in a way that you think is not correct from some higher moral ground, you can probably take steps to correct that. But when you think you are the perpetrator of something um, that you think that you sort of know is kind of on the line, is not so unjust, you're probably wielding more power or hogging more resources or something, you are less likely to have that drive to make things fair, so mm. to say, or make things um, balanced out. I think, so yeah, from the third person point of view, maybe we have a stronger sense of fairness than when it comes to our own selves, especially if we are the ones who are benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. That's the feeling I get. I've not actually studied this in a specific way, but that's, yeah, that's the impression that I have. What do you think? Well, uh, I, the first thing comes to mind is is Franz Deval and the experiment Mm -hmm. with the cappuccino monkeys. Mm-hmm. And um, well, what happens in the experiment is basically um, the experimenters uh, train the capturing monkeys w- with a task, which is uh, giving a rock to the experimenter, and then they get something in return for that rock. And they have two capturing monkeys just uh, um, sitting beside each other, 
uh, and while they're doing the same work, which is taking the rock, giving to the experimenter, they are paid uh, differently. One gets a grape and the other one gets a cucumber. And uh, they prefer much, much more the, cu the, the grape. And the one that gets the cucumber gets really pissed with that. So, um, and the argument would go is that, yeah, even uh, uh, um <coughs> new world uh, monkeys would have a sense of fairness um, when, when there is a, 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 a apparently unjust uh, um, retribution for the same work in this situation. But the um, question is, does a grape getting monkey get pissed off? No, the, the monkey that get, gets the, what? The grape getting monkey. How does that monkey react? It reacts. Um, it eats as the grape. It's a grape. He likes the grape. He, he, he thinks it's fine. It's. He, I think he's satisfied. With yeah, it. yeah, yeah. That that's the thing. Yeah, though, yeah. I, but, but but we we can we we can think right. Um, if there would be a comparison between uh, the two kind of payments, would that be still a reaction? is not the case so it's content with the grape when he knows that instead he could get a cucumber mm -hmm. right so the, in comparison the grapes it's, it's satisfying if he would get a cucumber when the grape wouldn't be a possibility probably it would be satisfied as well right uh, so mm -hmm. that's the, the, the case the having like some social comparison there and that's why it brings fairness to the to the table because uh, it needs the comparison component bringing um, uh, something else that it wasn't there, which is the comparison between the grape and the cucumber. Yeah, but it's not being fair in the sense that it's being angry for um, the person who's the the monkey who's getting the grape, the cucumber. It is only angry when there is a better thing to be gained. Yes. And so the monkey, which knows that there's a better thing to be gained and is not getting that, mm -hmm. that monkey is pissed. The one yep. who knows that he's already getting the better stuff is not pissed. So do you, can yep. you say that there's an innate sense of fairness in a way that everyone wants to distribute things in a similar manner? Well, I, I'm not I'm not entirely convinced um, f f uh, for this experiment in a specific. I think we can look at the other, obviously fairness or have been studied on primates in, in different ways. I would have to look it up a um, collection of what the results are. But um, um, not specifically for the capuchin monkey. That's not um, something that I think it's, it's a little bit stereotypical. Well, the assessment is how 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 pissed the the, the capuchin monkey is. Um, um, I I I don't know. I would still have to look at the other results from other fairness experiments on primates, but um, I, I I could not settle it um, entirely. No, as, but as even if you look life. at this specific example, mm -hmm. then it's still saying something that if there was a third monkey who was seeing this thing happening, they would say that, oh, no, give grape to both or give cucumber to both. And when the monkey who's getting a cucumber is responding, he has the sense of feeling unjust, mm -hmm. unjustly treated. But the third one, which is the one getting the grape, does not really care. And I think that's what you see in human societies. Yeah. And this is something that me and Ohan have worked on as well that um, let's say when there's gender inequalities or where there's caste inequalities or where there's, I don't know, nationwide inequalities between a stronger nation and a weaker nation, the possibility that the stronger one feels really bad enough to sort of give up their mm. own advantages is much lower. And then, mm. then if you look at that advantaged person who's 
at the who's getting the better bargain in an unequal system what can you say about the innateness of a sense of fairness which tries to move towards equitable distributions i would say it does not exist in the advantaged party mm-hmm. but why is that not the case so i think there's a there are a couple of things here right <clears throat> one is that uh, everybody believes in justice if they don't have to give anything up mm-hmm. and this is a this is an important point and i think we we see this in the in the kapunjas as well uh, the other component and this is uh interlinked with with what i just said is that privilege tries to maintain privilege it, this is this is something that we see uh throughout how humans interact is if i'm benefiting from a situation i am motivated to continue benefiting from the situation in that same way and so i think it one of the things that we need to try to build in is people understanding that the greater good is better for everyone and so if i have privilege that means that i'm benefiting and somebody's losing out and the society that i'm existing in is worse off i could be living in a better society if i give a, give up some of the things i think are valu- valuable the society that i exist in will give me things that uh, are much more valuable than the things i'm actually gaining from it um which is something like harmony and uh, humans working together uh the ability to not see people suffer things like this so these are just sort of like grand optimistic ideals right um but the another important facet of this is social comparison where uh like you let me said if if we anchor uh there's this sort of like anchoring bias which is if i see the first benefit or the first price cost of something that's the one that sticks in my mind as the baseline uh so if i see uh something i that is good enough for me as something that i will get like a uh the cucumber i guess is less valuable than the grape mm-hmm. yeah so if i see just cucumbers i'm happy with cucumbers but if somebody else is getting grapes i want grapes and this is just the natural human state and i think that this is why uh things like revolutions uh always come at times of more revolution because revolutions inspire one another they say oh other people can get more i actually also want more this is one of the great fights about mm. and this is why social justice catches on This is why I think the Me Too movement like caught on is people were like, "Oh, we can we don't have to put up with this state of inequity. We don't ha- we can hold the privileged classes accountable." And so this sort of process of accountability, whether it's, you know, chopping people's off with, heads off with the guillotine uh 250 years ago or it's something like uh firing them from jobs, making sure they have to leave certain industries, putting them in jail, uh all of these things uh means that people looked at uh for holding people accountable i don't like uh public assassinations or prisons by the way just want to <laughs> put that out there um but yeah th- this accountability process ends up being uh a crucial means of of trying to achieve justice and i think that just to to wrap up justice is a to me again with equality equity and fairness i think justice is just the action it's the verb hmm. it's the adding of terms to an equation and that's what we mean when we say justice because justice I don't think that there's an overarching objective framework for justice like I don't think there's an overarching objective framework for for equality. I think justice is most easily defined as just the process of adding terms to this equation of equality, fairness, equity. Because it's it's when I'm actually saying okay, well, I I'm, I'm trying to build justice into it. The act of adding something is justice. Okay. That um that I'm going to have to think about it to actually be able to visualize it. Justice as a verb. I like that though. um verbs are way better than nouns in any case <laughs> no because it just <laughs> implies action no <laughs> declarative statement yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh <clears throat> but i was um i was thinking about you talking about the fact that 
the the equations are basically part of the <clears throat> the grander scheme of things. So I think how I see it, if you want to bring about fairness in some sense, social comparison is really important. So the people who are at the top or who have a wider view of the world, maybe even people who have traveled, who have experienced different systems, they are the ones who can talk about all the necessary variables, if you will, in that equation, just because they have they can see more or they have seen more. And then by knowing which parts of the population to be brought into comparison, <clears throat> they can start providing information to um, people, like in the Me Too movement. If women are getting information about other women, when, when there's already a similarity because they are of the same gender, then that can bring about change and the dissatisfaction at the lower level, which eventually will lead to some changes in people's everyday behaviors. Because I think it needs to go sort of, yeah, top down, but also bottom up as well. And I think right now there's a lot of top down talk and um, bringing about things like conversations or social comparison, giving people information about other people just helps in bringing about that movement towards a state which in which there's not huge power differentials between people. Yeah, this kind of ties back to an earlier conversation Guilherme and I had about information, which is the reason why autocrats try to limit the amount of information that their people have is that they don't see anybody gaining anything else. This social comparison aspect is so baked into our understanding of how to, how to rule autocratically that, that information is the first thing autocrats try to cut off. Mm -hmm. And this becomes the, the core of what uh, grassroots movements do internationally. Uh, the whole internationalist movement across borders from the Soviet Union to, to Western Europe, people were doing crazy things like uh, etching uh, poems, which, by the way, uh, as a poet, I mean, poems are usually the main form of resistance, uh, disseminated through every resistance throughout in the past. But people were etching poems into um, uh, x-rays. Like, they were saying that they were shipping x-rays, like medical um, forms, mm -hmm. and they were literally itch uh, etching, like, Chekhov's poems uh, on... Uh, on x-rays so that you couldn't see it until you held it up to the light so they'd pass customs. Ah. I mean, whole, whole, whole Russian texts were smuggled out uh, so that people could get an understanding of what was going, what was going on. And in the same way, uh, Western European sort of texts about uh, authoritarianism and things like this were smuggled in um, to Russia. Mm -hmm. The same thing's going on between North Korea and South Korea right now. Um, mm -hmm. The same thing with Palestinian poets, uh, Mahmoud Darush, you know, uh, writing and disseminating through this whole connected network of poets that would disseminate information. It's so important because we understand what's possible through other humans. I wanted to ask you, so what sort of levels do you think comparisons should be made are, or are fruitful to be made? So um, when you talk about comparisons, I'm thinking of an example of um, some conversations I have with my sister, with my friends, who are looking at social media constantly, let's say, and they're getting extremely um, demotivated almost, or aiming too high, or comparing things which are not really comparable, just because there's some sorts of similarities. And yeah, so what? at what level, I, I completely agree that there should be some sort of social comparison in, about to in order to think about your own situation in a better light, but it also has its negative sides which is the case with all of the social media inbred um, dissatisfaction and lack of self-confidence that people have come up with. Um, what yeah, about that? You bring up a great point. I mean, right now, um, and, and, and in the years in the past, social media companies have been on trial for this exact thing. 
Oh, they haven't really? called. They haven't called it social comparison. But the the harm, the harm that uh, I shouldn't put it in air quotes. There's harm. The harm that social media companies uh, uh, have on on teenagers is seen as the the harm of social comparison. They say, mm-hmm. oh, there are body image problems. Mm-hmm. There, well, the bullying is is a separate case. But I, I think fundamentally, the body image problems, uh, the depression, the suicides, uh, the eating disorders, these are all we've seen heightened through uh, excessive social media use. And this is definitely the downside of social comparison. Uh, because this is, I think, fundamentally also what uh, materialist, capitalist uh, um, economies function on is every, every advertisement is an attempt to tap into social comparison. Mm-hmm. It is like, Look at this guy. Don't you want to be this guy? Look at his wife. Don't you want to be with his wife? Use this deodorant. I mean, that that's the that's the basis of of the the consumerism that we mm-hmm. build. And so again, I think social comparison is such a powerful uh, cognitive reality, you know that that advertisers have used it for for millennia. Uh, it's it's both what has generated the greatest revolutions and also generated excessive subservience uh, through consumerism. And, and mm-hmm. this is, this is the, the dual nature of, of the, the human existence. Yeah, I think yeah. we, we talked on this point, uh, we talked about this point uh, both on our talk about power and information, actually, because um, I think we kind of agreed by there uh, on, on those talks um, that when we're talking about power, for example, And um, media or social media, in, in this case, um, uh, promotes a, a, a way of you trying. Uh, uh, it gives to you an idea of what makes you more powerful. So you look at the like, this is the perfect body because it's the body that has more likes on Instagram, or mm-hmm. this is the body that you should have. Uh, because it gets more attention from people and more comments and th- things like that. So what we we were talking about on those talks is just that, well, we are always looking for something that makes, that increases our sense of, of agency or being powerful or how, how can I situate myself better here? And social media gives you um, true social comparison. So you are using a social comparison to, to say, okay, I, I, I have less power than this person because I do not have that body or I do not have that car or I do not have that things, right? But what it's basically doing is just like creating this environment that foster a specific kind of display of power, which is likes, recognition, <coughs> or the best picture, the picture that has more comments or things like that. And it does, let, does that with many other things, like in advertisement, well, that's the thing that would make you happy because that thing makes you more valuable so you're looking for the things that make that that those things in in reality they might or most of the time not actually make you more happy mm-hmm. and uh it does not make you more valuable but the environment the the this vitrine or where it's displayed it's imperative that it, it is the powerful look or the powerful picture the powerful whatever Uh, because it's the way that it, it is presented to you. So it's one thing fits to the other, right? So you wanted that power, you wanted that prestige, or you wanted that thing. And uh, the thing that gets more prestiged on this environment and the way that it's presented is this that you are looking at. So then let me ask you <clears throat> a question because um, this conversation is reminding me of this text I read by Amartya Sen, 
do you think it's better to then not compare not have comparisons at all so amartya sen was writing um, about gender conflicts in different places so he has studied in i think he was in oxford or in cambridge but he was a nobel prize winner he's been in the uk he's been across the world he's from india he's from bengal so he's seen and he was from rural bengal i think originally he was born and brought up there but then he moved to kolkata and then outside of india but he's seen like a um a wide variety of socio economic and demographic situations and um in one of the papers about gender he was writing that if you ask about what is fair or how you would bring about equity to a woman living in a rural part of bengal who is um happy enough with her family she thinks of her own welfare in terms of welfare of the family members the question of having individual welfare is itself unintelligible to her and she's happy with that and uh, her <clears throat> her children possibly are prospering from that and people around her, her are happy with that that's just the way their social reality is constructed and to her would you want to <clears throat> give different values of social comparison where individualistic welfare is thought about because i think nowadays of course it's a western thing there's a lot of focus on individual based um gains individual based welfare individual um inputs and outputs and all of that <coughs> and for certain communities maybe it was better to just let them be happy in their community because they were growing and prospering as a community so yeah yeah i think i think just uh, uh, um it, it is related how social comparison should be um or it can be beneficial obviously uh it can um be motivating um i think it has to be coupled with some idea of social distance as well so athletes can be uh, uh can 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 s- compare themselves with other athletes right so and and they can run faster they can uh swim faster or whatever they wanted to do and it's good for them that they have a comparison to to aim higher mm-hmm. uh, uh but me as a, as a phd candidate i may aim a comparison comparing myself with a certain kind of person that i admire and i wanted to get to that standard while it, i should not compare myself uh, to usain bolt because yeah. it doesn't have it is socially distant from me you know so i don't want to run faster and i don't have to feel bad because i don't run like usain bolt because it's just not within my selfish interest of advancing myself or becoming better it's not going to make me better within my social uh, cultural um environment you know so mm-hmm. t- you have to couple social comparison within your own environment mm-hmm. and it might be beneficial if you wanted to um gain some insight on what's the potential that you can reach yeah mm-hmm. i think it's a parable here that's used commonly for intelligence is relevant where if you if you try to judge the intelligence of a fish by how well it can climb a tree you're going to fail mm-hmm. right because it it's irrelevant mm-hmm. and so there's a domain specificity i think for everything that that we deal with and this is again that that difference of different degrees of difference mm-hmm. um in that if usain bolt tries to compare himself to a cheetah bad idea right mm-hmm. but compared to other runners uh one of the best and so this is this is one of the things that we see uh to angarika's point Again, I think the the idea here is that 
again, structures for improving the lives of individuals have to be bottom up. They can't be top down. There's a great uh, set of terms in the intersectional literature uh, called benevolent racism, benevolent sexism. It's sort of like this indulgent attempt to self-gratify by uh, attempting to impose what we think is betterment on the lives of others, right? It, but it doesn't work because there's no way we can know what others experience. And so it has to be a conversation. There is probably a way to make uh, the, the, in the case study that you mentioned of a woman in a household in Bengal, there's probably a way to make her life better, but she knows what that is. We don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. And if, if we come in and we're like, back where we're from, mm -hmm. uh, the women's lives are improved this way, mm -hmm. it, it might be completely unintelligible. Mm -hmm. So this, this, is, this is, I think, one of the important things. But I was just thinking about a sort of interesting division uh, while Guilherme was speaking earlier, um, where uh, there's a difference between, when we're, we're talking about social comparison, there's a difference between how I am, like my state, versus how I am seen, uh, which is like my influence relative to others. And here, maybe we can make an interesting distinction between social comparison for justice, mm. uh, which is the social comparison in the positive sense, like revolutions, and the social comparison for power, which is mm. often in the negative sense, like what we suffer through um, for commercials and social media, um, where with justice, I'm comparing my state relative to the state of others, like my, my ground state. And I think that's really important. And it's really beneficial when we're understanding uh, our, our states of relative privilege or how we are um, relatively disadvantaged by a system, by how we can better understand systemic justice, injustice. But when we're looking at uh, our influence relative to others, we're looking at the social comparison for power. And I think this isn't necessarily a toxic uh, engagement with society. It's saying they have more power, I want more power. There's nothing good that can ever, has ever come from that. But there's so much good that has come from, oh, they, their state is good and I think I can achieve that state or my state is good and their state is not good and therefore I, maybe we can achieve a better equality. But wait, so uh, when you're talking about their state, I think their state necessarily includes the power component also. So if somebody is comparing their state to somebody else's state, I don't think you can say that, yeah, wanting power, people can want power for different reasons, I think, to be able to even control their own lives. So have autonomy over themselves. Um, I think a lot of power is about that. Um, so yeah, when you say I don't think I can readily decouple, say, decouple this intention of people wanting to be in somebody else's state, uh, versus people wanting to have power that other people have, unless you're wanting to pull them down. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's uh, sloppy wording on my part. I agree. I think there can be a state of power that I'm trying to achieve as well. But I think there is fundamentally still, I think the difference still holds, but I think the wording is not right yet. Um, in that I do think that there's a difference between the power we try to achieve. Uh, and there is something to um, the relative power we try to gain through revolution, um, say. But I think there there is something different between uh, maybe it's the maybe it's rather a difference in uh, domains, right? Uh, than just a difference in state versus power. In that maybe it's in the domains of of um, my my social identity relative to others and my power relative to others. Maybe it's like um, the the state of my social group relative to others. Maybe there's something like that. That's more that's a better way to think about it. Where 
as we start to expand beyond ourselves, the power we try to gain as a group might be uh, something more akin to um, changing political states rather than the power we have as an individual. Uh, maybe it's that one is purely social comparison for changes to systems, and the other one is social comparison to changes of self. And maybe this is a better distinction. And do you think the one where people try to bring about changes to systems is necessarily better intentioned than um, gaining power for the self? Yeah, not not always. You know, in that uh, I can try to bring a change to the system uh, by becoming an autocrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are changes, there is social comparison that we can make uh, where we our ability to compare ourselves to others is limited so that we don't enact change. But yeah, you're right in that it's definitely not an absolute in that one leader might look at another leader and say, I want the power he has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it's happens. It's usually a group, I think, also. Yeah, that's fair. For no, you're absolutely right. Power. You're absolutely right. Maybe it doesn't hold that well. And I think, yeah, even in the case of uh, women trying to gain more power, it can start with a very benevolent intention of just gaining uh, access into the libraries. But then at some point, uh, feminists are also called feminazis because they become too aggressive in their want of power or even superseding the power of men. I think, yeah, the whole power thing just, um, it is really a matter of degree after which it just gets a bit ugly, (laughs) uh, I think, in some sense. But I think people are always trying to, um, I don't know, bring about some changes in that power dynamics, which is also one of the things that underlies how people consider fair systems. As so well. we have to try to understand which fairness is fair, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> which equation is fair? No, because, yeah, because fairness is always about shifting power, right? Kind I think of, yeah? so, yeah. yeah. That's definitely so, one big aspect. Yeah. And what you brought up is that... Um, um, if it's effective in shifting power, it can be a discourse of power shifting mm-hmm. for the power shifting itself. So we have Explain to... Explain that, please. <laughs> so it's um, basically, if we have a two to shift power from one side to the other mm-hmm. in this equation, uh, and this two works, so it can be misused. Right, mm-hmm. because it depends on the perception and what's actually, the sh- which exactly this shift should be, and for how mm-hmm. much it should be, and for how long, and yeah. for whom, and uh, you know, and we we can go endless on the idea of uh, of uh, of tribalism and defining what what's what is our in group. It's it's fair for 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 all of us. It's fair for me. It's fair for a specific kind of person. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think you, you, you can go ahead. <laughs> no, I was I was saying that there's also this innate tendency in humans to always overcorrect if they have been low in power. Mm. They are not just gonna get gonna want to get to the same power as the other group. Let's say they will also always want to sort of overcorrect because they think eventually that will equalize systems a little bit. But yeah, that's also um, a tricky thing when you try to balance out everyone's well-being because the uh, people who have been wronged will try to overcorrect and or if you give them the opportunity to have um, favors for a long time, the system itself will overcorrect and then it will start becoming unjust towards 
the other groups which were in power before, which is the case that happens with reservations in um, in India, actually. I don't know if that's always the case. I, I think it's, I don't think it's um, fair <laughs> uh, to, to say that, say the uh, feminism will necessarily result in an unequal state uh, or to say that uh, all feminists will transition to a state in which they want um, an unequal state that just benefits them. I, I don't think that that's a fair assessment of, of resistance politics, uh, whether it's social justice uh, or for social justice in any domain. Um, I think that there's, there's an important thing of whether we value something like harmony, for lack of a better word, right? In that every time we make gains towards a more equal system, one, one side has to be making concessions uh, and the other side is gonna be the beneficiary of those concessions. But we have to try to make sure that there is a, a sense where the concessions are not pushed too far or that there is a uh, benefit that the individuals see to actually making the concessions. I think that there, there is an innate value, an innate good that everybody gets from a more equal society. And it's whether or not we actually believe this. And some people don't believe it. Like fundamentally they think, well, it's a system, humans are meant to compete, some have more than others, that's just the state of things. And whether you believe that or not is I think gonna make a huge shift uh, have have lasting repercussions for the divergence between your beliefs and the beliefs of somebody else. I fund fundamentally believe that uh, people being more equal, it builds a better society for everybody. So I think if we're gaining, the more we put into the system uh, to build more equality, the better the system's gonna be to exist in, period. I have a question to you. Um, <clears throat> so this thing about having uh, people wanting to do things for the greater good. So when a child is growing up, when the younger generation is coming up, at what stage and in what form do you think this sort of teaching can be given to children such that they're not looking out for the welfare of themselves, which is almost genetically wired, or the welfare of their families, but towards the greater good? When do you start talking about things like, um, oh, you should be striving towards um, the good of you know, the society around you? I think that the genetic argument is a difficult one to bring in, right? Because you could probably make the case that uh, societal well-being is also genetically wired. So I, I would stay away from a from an essentialist uh, genetics argument, especially because there's no good way to define like genetic inheritance in, in terms of that. But uh, I, I would say that socially we do construct ways where we do tell children that sharing is caring. Right. This is mm -hmm. fundamentally uh, build a system where if other people's have uh, if other people have, you're also going to benefit. The, the the root of sharing is caring, right? Which is taught at least uh, in the United States, um, and I'm, I'm guessing everywhere else as well. Uh, that uh, kids ought to share what they have because then the kids around them will also be happy, and then there's no problem of kids fighting over toys or food or anything like that. So the more we distribute resources, the better off everybody is. And I think this is an, an essential thing taught that we teach to kids. I think this is also, so there was this experiment done by Daniel Nettle and Rebe Rebecca Sachs um, a few years ago. And this thing that you're talking about where people would want to go for the larger good or greater harmony in society also comes slightly from a position of privilege when everything is calm, when there's no war, when there's no scarcity, when 
you know, people are more or less not super different, not super heterogeneous. That is when people tend to show preferences for very equalistic or very, you know, egalitarian. generous egalitarian distribution of resources. And they did this um, experiment where they give uh, different participants a story of this faraway hypothetical village, but they change how these villages are operating. So some participants will hear that this village is under war, under attack from another nearby village, or that they have faced a famine and the crops are lost, etc. And I think if you take into account that, of course, there's different countries who are facing a lot of these challenges across the world, then uh, it's harder and I think it's also unfair to ask people to be looking out for the greater good generally. I think their vision will get more and more narrowed down towards their own community, which might be a very small community, not the whole country. And yeah, that was just I just wanted to bring up that example. Yeah, no, I I think it's still the right mentality. I think we still have to have people focusing on the greater good. The problem is that the more we hoard, the worse our situation is. If I don't have food and the small food I have, I also restrict from other people I start hoarding. That's also gonna make my environment worse because then people will, there will be repercussions for me. Mm-hmm. The fact that uh, it comes from a privileged position to say, yeah, we should work for the greater good is, a, is itself an argument to build in better systems for people to live in. One of the core things that, that works every time for an autocrat is make people more poor and make them focus on their needs because this is mm-hmm. because this is an understandable thing. Nobody blames anyone. I, I'm not blaming anyone for saying, I have needs, my needs aren't met, therefore I'm gonna focus on meeting my needs first. There is this idea of in the, in the airplane when the, uh, the air masks come in, put on your mask first so you can breathe and then you can help other people put on their masks. Uh, this is sort of a, a fundamental aspect of economics when we try to understand how individuals are gonna interact in a, in a society. We can't say always, oh, help somebody else. This seems to the only time this seems to work really well is with with um, siblings or children. Parents and children is obviously something mm-hmm. where people help the children first because they see their children as extensions of them. Mm-hmm. So that's basically helping yourself, except yourself is embodied in another being. But yeah, I, I think that what we need to try to build is systems where people have more so that the conversation can shift from meeting my own needs to having uh, building a better society. And this is a good case for things like uh, basic income, right, uh, across individuals. And not a, again, because we're taking into account equity, right, S- systemic inequality, it doesn't mean giving everybody the same amount. It means to each as they require, which means some kind of graduated notion of uh, basic income, which uh, doesn't have provisions for people who are making a million dollars to actually get basic income because they don't need it, right? In a system where we're trapped in this idea that everything has to be equal in order to be equal, we lose sight of the fact that the starting point is unequal. Mm -hmm. So if everybody, nobody pays the same amount of taxes, we have graduated tax rates. So we should also have graduated rates of basic income and provisions. Which is actually a recent thing, the progressive taxes thing. It's not been there. Yeah, I mean, and even then, so many nations are using tax brackets when we have computers that will do the calculation down to the penny 
of what、mm-hmm. you should give,、mm-hmm. you know, and you can have the proportion that you give exponentially increase as you make more money, so that everybody has a different tax rate, effective tax rate, and all these things work. I mean, you can calculate these, and we have computers do the calculations, but we're stuck. In frameworks, obviously, because it's beneficial for some people over others,、uh, mm-hmm. where you have loopholes and tax brackets that don't make any sense. But this is this is the system that we're living under、uh, that we need to heavily reform, not just with moderate amendments,、mm-hmm. but heavily reform in order to get people to start thinking about equitable systems. Yeah, coming back to what、uh, Ingrid's question was,、um, yeah, I agree with all what you have been saying actually, and.、Um, I think I think that、um, the greater good strive it's it's fundamentally、uh, it, it should be fundamentally selfish. Actually, you should you should see、uh, how your life actually improves by everybody、mm-hmm. else's lives being improved.、Mm-hmm. And、um, w- I'm not so sure. Well, I tend to, I tend to, to be a little bit balanced by the idea of a problem of scale. So、um, yes, if we are well, w- when we have families, we have obviously the 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 mo- the, 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 the the engine of kin selection uh, uh, operating over there. So so、um, we are、um, improving the extension of ourselves by helping them out, and、um, it is conceivable on a small scale uh, uh, communities that.、Um, The return for 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 increased fairness、uh, within the the, the system—it's、uh, an immediate return that we can kind of gauge re- remotely, if, even in, even in, in kind of like self-esteem. If you because you, you you like that person, you like your neighbor, you have a good relationship with your neighbor, you, you genuinely might be happy by improving their lives, and then it's kind of like affects you directly in a selfish way. That's okay. Yeah. I, I I like that everybody is happy around me, and that makes me happy as well.、Uh, I'm not so sure if the problem of scale is actually a problem of scale or a problem of communication and miscommunication. So, for people like within in a really really large group, it's not that we. Well, if you would go,、uh, Robin Dunn's Dunbar's wrote is just that okay. There's so much people you cannot track,、uh, you cannot keep track of everything that's going on, every single relationship. Like you just don't care. It's more than 150.、Mm-hmm. I can, my brain cannot do it. <clears throat> I believe that's not quite like that. I believe that it's harder to understand how. Uh, you can be impacted by the improvement in,、uh, in the fairness in the system. So there is a problem with the, with the communication within the scale, and then people can obviously take advantage of the process of communication by and then take advantage. What I mean is gather a hoard power for themselves, and、uh, that kind of like disrupt a person's own perception of how their life is improving by improving fairness in the system. So that's、mm-hmm. that's my. A kind of perspective, so it is related to scale, but not the Dunbar wrote of of yeah, there is too much, too much social interactions to to keep track of. But I think there is, it's hard for us to understand how our life improves. So that's why we we have in our dis- discourse that, well.、Um, 
all that you have to do is be a better entrepreneur uh, and then uh, 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 meritocracy is going to act magically to to make you rich famous and mm-hmm. um, and have all of the everything that you ever dream and without perceiving that uh, well there is someone taking the whole t- c- cake anyways so <laughs> w- mm-hmm. like you, you cannot conceive that because the information is not reaching you in appropriate way for you to understand that mm-hmm. so that's that's my my understanding of it I think there are a few um, serious cognitive roadblocks there mm. when you're talking about equitable systems or things that makes everyone feels fairly treated on large scale. There are some serious roadblocks there because this Robin Dunbar study of having this uh, threshold number of people which your brain can keep track of is a problem. How do you see the greater good bec- when you can't really visualize it so much you can see communities being well off sure but like it's a bit difficult to visualize the whole world being greater good and how how on earth is that going to affect you how on earth is that good for you it's it's just a bit hard even i find it hard and also the fact that we are not so future looking like we are not super uh <laughs> future looking animals and especially if you put humans uh-huh. in scarcity situations how do you give fairness be. for next generations for example right Yes, and that is that is something that a lot of people use especially in the environmental um, debates. Um but still it's hard and what if people say I don't want to have kids? Should I be doing things for like other people's kids? I don't know. But yeah, so you can that's one of the things that you can use to help people overcome this bias of the present moment, which is I think pretty strong. So I think these are important roadblocks to being able to implement what you are saying which is a general good and making everyone think about how others can eventually help you. So let me introduce one idea. Immigration. Right? Okay. You said we can conceptualize greater good. Everybody can conceptualize immigration and border issues. Mm-hmm. Nobody is talking about building a war uh, a wall between affluent countries. Why? Everybody understands that the livelihood of the individuals in those more affluent countries means that nobody wants to leave. Everybody mm-hmm. does understand that their borders with less affluent countries will make those people want to move to theirs. Mm-hmm. This is the conceptualization on a very large scale of the greater good. So I I very much disagree. I think humans are very capable of understanding this. Right? We've built huge walls arguments, systems of oppression built around the idea of saying we are going to exploit resources from these people and also build walls with those resources to keep them out. So this is this is crucial. If you look at the United States and that is not to ignore all of Europe which has these again also really draconian um uh measures to make sure effectively that people drown when they're trying to cross borders in the United States The same thing, people are drowning, getting tied up in razor wire, getting shot by um crazy locals on the American side of the border. There is no border wall on the Canadian side of of the American border. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason for that. Canada is also affluent. Canada is also a country that exploits uh is also a privileged nation that exploits other nations. So and and the United States instead of you have you have two camps. Well, you have everything in between as well. But you have two camps on on either end. uh one camp which says we are going to hoard the resources and keep everybody else out mm-hmm. and so for that nationalist narratives racist narratives um false narratives about uh, excessive violence um crop up to justify this position and on the other side the the progressive position says instead of spending all this money um killing torturing 
um, uh, interning people, building walls. Why don't we just spend the money uh, not on things that people might need in, say, Mexico in this exact case, but actually just giving Mexico the money and saying, you know what to do. Um, you, you know, do something. Let's share some of what we have. And then you might solve some of the situation where people are crossing the border. And of course, it's not just people from Mexico, but all of Latin America, which the United States has historically exploited. So you have the system of, I'm going to take from everybody, and then I'm going to keep everybody out. And so I, I do think that when we start looking at large-scale social systems and how we construct our politics, we can see that individuals do innately understand these things, but are either actively avoiding it or, on, on the progressive end, actively fighting to understand that the greater good is better for everybody. My point, wait, sorry, my point was not. My point was not that it's, we are inherently bad uh, on, on on understanding uh, the large scale social dynamics on which we are embedded. What I was saying is that there is an inherent problem in communication of it. I know. I completely agree with your point. I was kind of pushing back a bit more mm -hmm. on Angarika because okay, yeah. I agree with you. I think the problem is communication. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the biggest hurdle. Um. I've forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, wait, you were talking about... Um, okay, yeah, so yep. another point that I wanted to get back to is you're bringing up this example of immigration and I agree that in that case, people are obviously able to sort of simulate what other people of the, a whole other country might do, whether it be it Mexico or be it Canada or other European states. But then this thing that we talked about of humans having an innate sense of fairness, but also the people who are better off always trying to keep the resources to themselves. How do, how do those two things come together? How can we explain them together? Do you think that people are always keeping resources to themselves? I think the ones in power don't want to lose power. So the United States does sure. not really mind um, other affluent Canadians coming into their country, but they mind other uh, not so affluent Mexicans coming into their country. So this is the Same this is the exact the... problem: is that you you have different political opinions. You have it's there's 330 million people in the United States with with vastly different opinions about what this is like. Some individuals who claim that they want the greater good, but just for Americans, which is an arbitrary distinction, like every other nationality, uh, and others on the progressive end of the spectrum, of which there are a large amount. Uh, who understand that actually building more uh, building systems where everybody's benefiting from the uh, resources that that are available on the planet <laughs> uh, will build a better a better planet for everybody. So I do agree that that leaders in the United States have all been pretty fascist when it comes to this. Have all been pretty right wing um, uh, regarding border policies, but uh, that doesn't mean that the that that encompasses the the entirety of the general public. And there is a there is a large enough progressive end which fundamentally understands this. Okay. Yeah, I also think there is a there should be make uh, we should make a distinction between what's uh, globalized and localized kind of issues. We talked about that before. And for for my perspective is just that people um if it wasn't by the means of communication, like if it wasn't by media telling you about Either the benefits or the 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 the, the 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 potential problems of immigration, you would not have to form an opinion about immigration unless there is people actually coming to your village in the middle of nowhere, and then you kind of would form your opinion based on your interactions with these people. 
that is coming into your village. So I don't think that um, there is the whole the whole issue not issue, but there, there is the whole uh, uh, um, level of imagining what are the nation's problems, which are actually not. Or well, it becomes the people's problem, but it's not. It, it, it is a little bit far-fetched to imagine that that's how uh, society should be operating. Like the nation is an artificial thing, mm -hmm. so society should not be operating on this level. Uh, well, our mental capacity should not be operating on this level, but on the level of the local or what we actually matters for us. And so people would not actually have an idea of immigration is good or bad unless they are interacting with immigrants that come to, to, to live on the next door. So mm -hmm. everything else that they think about immigration, either if it's good or bad, it's because of communication. It's about how it is communicated for them. And then they, 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 they get to, to a belief system on which encompass, okay, those are the aspects of immigration. This is how it affects my life or how they imagine that affect their life or how it does not. Yeah, I mean, we're, we have whole movements that are suppressed like syndicalism, like internationalism, the Trotskyites of the 20th century. People who, who understand that the nation state is, is constructed and innately a negative force in that it creates artificial boundaries, creates systems of information dissemination and information withholding from general public. And this is this crucial thing about uh, information in that the more the information we are exposed to is both filtered by what we believe and impacts what we believe. And so there's this belief and perception uh, dynamic that we have as information comes in where the information is com comes in, is filtered by our beliefs. We call that perception and then to some extent changes our beliefs. And this, I think, transitions well to, to some of the work that, that you and I have been doing together on Garka, which is basically the, 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 the cognition, the cognitive aspect, um, which is always itself motivated uh, to interpret situations as fair or unfair based on my relative position in that equation, where you have in a, in a household, which is what we've worked on, uh, m men who are advantaged, unfairly advantaged by uh, the systems of the household will see it as fair because they don't want to see themselves as oppressors or as overly privileged. And the women in the household will see it as fair because they don't want to see themselves as being taken advantage of. Uh, and I think that this is, this is a very interesting aspect when we're trying to understand fairness is the, the perception of fairness, the, which is, again, the subjective construction of the equation by each individual in it will be the terms will be impacted the values of the terms will be impacted by what benefits each person's conception of themselves yeah yeah i agree with that i mean that's something that we need to do as well we haven't uh, experimentally tested it out but um it would be nice to know and i was just thinking i was just writing some stuff on communication generally um i think that's something that all three of us have agreed upon that um, there has to be communication for people to understand the other's point of view and to eventually come to some sort of mutual acceptability. I'll just throw the term out there because that's going to be our larger theory of fairness, I think, um, at the end of my PhD or sometime after that. Um, <clears throat> the mutual acceptability um, idea of fairness, yeah. So if we have communication, if we are able to do some sort of grassroots investigation of what's going on and what people are actually facing, those should always be used to inform these larger 
ideals that we have and keep changing and tweaking the larger ideals um, in order to bring about things that most people are happy with, at least. This is this comes back to I think a conversation that Guilherme and I've had <clears throat> plenty of times, which is uh, uh, about pragmatism, mm-hmm. right? Because there's there's this idea of when we look at the privileged class in any in any dynamic, we're making concessions. You can you can hope that the entirety of the privileged class will be okay with the exact type and amount of concessions that you want them to make in order for the system to be equal, mm-hmm. but that is very unlikely. Um, and you can fight for that, which um, will be either, you know, uh, in the soft end, nonviolent protest uh, and resistance in the extreme end, violence, right? Um, you can try to demand it with physical force, which I think is always a negative outcome. Um, but then there's this sort of ability to be vocal and resist, which I think is incredibly important and probably one of the most valuable things we can do. Um but then you have you have this uh, this discussion about pragmatism of okay what can we get in this moment which will not cause the privileged class we are a- asking concessions from to also in turn be violent in order to maintain and I think we see this in the right wing in the United States sorry to keep bringing up the United States as an example but it's a hotbed for all these really extreme things but when you when you see the and this is the concept of fragility used in in um, uh, critical theory, right? Which is that the privileged class, the fragility of them um, is this, this I think, uh, cognitive refusal uh, to accept that they are privileged and therefore when faced with their privilege, then get angry or violent. And th- this, is, this is a constant threat. And it kind of sucks to say, yeah, we need to also make concessions to the people we are asking concessions from. We need to ask we need to worry about the feelings of the people who don't worry about anybody else's feelings. <laughs> but that's the pragmatic reality on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't ask people to just give up their houses and their stuff without also thinking about how they might feel about giving up. Well, one of houses. the houses only. Okay. One of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's true. They're not if you have two houses, Guilherme wants one of them. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's only one of them. It's, it's, yeah. don't, they don't have to give up their houses. Yeah. <laughs> The, ones the main one. They can give up the other ones. The ones that they their don't vacation use it homes. Anyways, yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and th- this is where, in the same way that we don't see the immediate effects of climate change in some places in the world, mm-hmm. uh, we have we can conceptualize them and understand that we are making a, a detriment to the, to the global climate. Um, we can also, I think, work to build in systems of equity where. It's gradual, and mm-hmm. we don't immediately take your house, but we <laughs> we will make sure that your grandchild doesn't have five houses. Yeah. And I think that yeah. we we can build systems like this, but we haven't tried yet. And there are proposals, but they haven't succeeded yet. Mm-hmm. But the fact that things are gradual and slow, and the human race has time, right? Um, hundreds of millions of years to figure this shit out. Well, hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, that we can actually build equitable systems that, yeah. are, that are at least as slow as climate change or hopefully, or maybe even, hopefully not as slow because, you know, I think global disaster is pretty, pretty imminent. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's pretty fast in our lifetimes, but I'd say pretty slow over the course since the Industrial Revolution. But maybe, maybe equality and equity, maybe we can build that in faster. I think, yeah, I, I mean, it's harder to change adults anyway, and it's easier to mold the minds of younger people. So if you 
breed not breed but like teach a young person to not expect all of the five houses that their grandparents had i think that's an easier task to accomplish than having this person who has built five houses over the course of his lifetime asking him at 60 years of age to give everything up it's a communication thing again <laughs> uh, you know can you can you control the information uh well enough and then you know there's this other side sort of side conversation uh that uh my buddy Michael and I have gotten into a million times which is um what is manipulation <laughs> and is it you know when when is manipulation okay uh and and when when is it actually manipulation and if it's for the greater good is it manipulation um this is sort of a mm. in the same way that we mm. we talk about fairness uh maybe there's a similar way to look at um when messaging is uh has a particular incentive Uh, and maybe we'll do some kind of conversation later about whether or not there's a difference between information and propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, <laughs> that, that'll be interesting. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely interesting. But yeah, is there anything else you want to tell us about your field or your work uh, before we sign off? My um, field and my work. I think one thing I would definitely like more and more people to know. However, many people listen to your podcast, is that it's incredibly valuable to do the. things of uh, a bottom up qualitative approach to um things especially like moral psychology and moral cognition along with doing the more theoretical stuff which moral philosophy has been doing for like decades and centuries centuries i don't know how old moral philosophy is but that was probably one of the first millennia uh, <laughs> I, I would <laughs> millennia okay, sorry <laughs> no, not decades actually yeah sorry <laughs> um but yeah the uh, the one thing that i have learned from my phd and hopefully will keep building on is this amazing insights you get when you do both the bottom up and the top down sort of approaches together and how that can really help in addressing things at a broader theoretical level but also at the individual levels which can impact lives in a more meaningful way and uh, i would just like to put out there that i love being working with anthropologists and sociologists along with doing stuff in cognitive science because i think cognitive science is important but i really enjoy the work that i really enjoy the way that anthropologists look at human beings and can you give us a quick sense of what you mean by top down and bottom up in this particular research context um so for example <clears throat> one of our studies i'm just going to give you examples of two studies which are going in literally the opposite direction one was we have this bargaining model a nash bargaining model of um how outside options can influence people's decisions about how they distribute labor and uh, so we've been using the model to see how hunter gatherers um how we can explain how much we can explain of the hunter gatherers division of labor using the bigger model and then realizing that we have to abstract away from a lot of things to able to be able to fit the data into the model and the other bottom down approach was doing vignette studies and giving people very real life scenarios and asking them to make decisions of fairness within those vignettes and then coming up with from the data trying to come up with a theory of what exactly is it that people look for when they are given real life situations and they are asked to judge fairness in these real life situations so yeah Uh one one last question on this on this also you have anything No no go ahead. Um which is say you had the the lifespan and the stamina to work for a thousand years. Um what what's the dream theory or thing that you'd come to understand through your research? You know, what's the driving thing where you're like I really wish humans understood this thing? 
So what I would like to put out for other people or no, what do you mean? Maybe, exactly? maybe an individual driving question. Like for me, it's really understanding that, that core mechanism of, of belief, identity, this sort of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what would that be for you? If you're like, okay, I can't do this in my lifetime. I'm hoping mm -hmm. to contribute in a small way to humans understanding of this thing. Mm -hmm. What is, what is that this thing? For me, it would be a methodological question. For me, it would be something to do with how best to understand and study human beings. And right um, yeah. what are the methodological tools to do that? Not just methodological, but also how to communicate with different people, how to have conversations, how to test those conversations, how to, I don't know, interpret those conversations. It's just, I think it's a lifelong goal to really in all fairness and all completion, try to understand even one human being if it's completely possible. So I think, yeah, the methodological part of that. Right on. Uh, do, you, um, do you have an answer to why we should try to understand human beings? Uh, why? Yeah. Oh my God. Because I think that's a really great answer. I mean, uh, understanding how to understand human beings is like a crucial thing that I think all of us are, are grappling with as cognitive scientists. But what... Um, do you do you have an answer for why you think that's important? Why? I mean, there's so many things, but I think it's important because uh, I am going to be a human being and my most relevant... No, that, that's not actually true. I don't know. Why is it relevant? I think given the fact that I look at my life at least and uh, being contained within academia and within academia looking at human... I don't know, actually. How would I answer that question of why it's relevant? It Doesn't it seem very obvious, very intuitively obvious that we would really want to understand human beings? That's what I study for my work. That's what I do for, you know, living a life. I talk to people all the time. Maybe this is a false dichotomy. Is it m more that you think humans are beautiful or more that you think it'll better the lives of human beings? And it can be neither. Uh-huh. I think uh, both. Yeah, Humans okay. are beautiful, and I would really like to have an influ an impact in bettering in some ways others' lives as well. So yeah, right I on. think if we can understand we can understand how to understand them really, what tools to use to understand them, then we can figure out how to make. I think making someone feel understood is also a really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we can use that to change some lives, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll end there. That's a yeah, great that's, way to that end. was perfect. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. End. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Angarika. Thank you for having me.